You're listening to a podcast from City Tribe Media. We're an urban tribe that helps people who feel far from God to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference. For more fresh content, check City Tribe on YouTube, Instagram, or Facebook. Enjoy the message, and welcome to the tribe. Now here's Lee Wong. Hey City Tribe, my name's Lee, and I'm one of your tribe teachers. And whether you're new to our tribe, or you've been a longtime part of the City Tribe fam, I'm thrilled you've joined us for week five of our summer series, Better Recognize, our journey through the book of John. Now, I believe today's teaching will fill you and satisfy your soul in a supernatural way like you've never experienced before. So, I hope you have something with which to take notes, a journal, a tablet, or a laptop, because today is another one of those dense teachings. It's so dense you may find it helpful to listen or watch a second time. Now, before we jump into the meat of our teaching, I need to acquaint you with a Bible study technique that's critical to our journey through John today. It's a technique you'd learn in introductory seminary classes, and it's based on a tendency that you and I already naturally do in conversation. Here's what I mean. Whenever you're in conversation with someone and you want to get your point across, what do you inevitably do? That's right. You repeat yourself, and then you repeat yourself again. And when you want to make sure someone completely comprehends what you're saying, in addition to repeating yourself, what else do you do? You raise your voice and insult them. No, well, maybe. But more effectively, you spend time explaining in great detail exactly what you mean. You unpack the information for the person you're communicating with. And this natural tendency for you and for me to repeat and explain in order to be understood, well, this is exactly what Bible authors like John did. And because in John's day, writing supplies like ink and papyrus, they weren't easily acquired and were really expensive, you and I can be sure that John was painstakingly particular with whatever ideas he gave the most ink to. And on top of that, we do believe that the scriptures were God-inspired, So, whatever got the most ink had to be important. Now, with all of that in mind, here's that Bible study technique to help you make sense of the scriptures, to help you get the most out of reading them. So be sure to write this down. And if you're watching the broadcast, say with me the phrase that's on the screen. Here we go. Whatever gets the most ink should make you pause to think. Whatever gets the most ink Whatever the author repeated and unpacked should cause you to pause and think. It demands your utmost attention. It was important. And this technique is especially critical today as we journey through the longest section in all of John's account. Today, we're going to journey through 71 verses in John chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles, your digital or physical Bibles, turn to John chapter 6. And because John dedicated to this section so much ink, you better believe that understanding his point will change your life. That's what I'm believing for you. And so with that, if you're ready for the scriptures to fill you and to satisfy you in a supernatural way, shout out, amen. Oh, come on, City Tribe. I said, if you're ready for the scriptures to fill you and satisfy you in a supernatural way, shout out, amen. Amen. Now, what was so significant 
that John dedicated so much of his limited ink and papyrus too. Well, where we pick up in John chapter 6, here's what had been going down. John recorded that because of the miracles Jesus had performed in defiance of the religious authorities' ridiculous traditions, the Jews began persecuting Jesus. And the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Jesus was a wanted man and was under the constant threat of execution. And on top of that, Jesus' beloved cousin, John the Baptizer, had recently been beheaded. And so with this intensifying persecution and having to deal with the grief of his cousin being beheaded, Jesus decided he needed to get away. He and his disciples, they traveled about 90, 95 miles north to a remote part of the fishing region known as Galilee. And while Jesus had wanted a brief break to recharge and get centered, his popularity wouldn't allow for that. Here's what John described. A huge crowd was following him because they saw the signs he was performing by healing the sick. You and I can know that Jesus' popularity at this time was at an all-time high. It was exceptionally pronounced because of what John recorded next. He wrote, now the Passover, a Jewish festival, was near. Passover was a sort of week-long Independence Day celebration for the Jews. It commemorated how God sent a prophet, Moses, around 1300 BC to liberate their ancestors from Egyptian oppression, from Egyptian slavery. And with first century Jews now under Roman oppression, many were awaiting a new Moses to liberate them. And so countless people were curious, seeing all the miracles and hearing about this guy named Jesus. Could Jesus be another liberator sent from God to make our nation great? And to be clear, this wasn't just a small handful of fanatics or a bunch of groupies. No, the details that John recorded for us reveal that Jesus had more of a Selena in the Astrodome type of status. There were so many men present, they numbered as many as a Roman elite infantry. John recorded, the men numbered about 5,000. And because Jewish law required each family to have at least one boy, and one girl for the survival of humanity, some scholars estimate there were upwards of 20,000 people present for this occasion on the Sea of Galilee. Having seen thousands of people rushing towards him, Jesus turned to his disciple, Philip, who was from that region. And in the same way all of us puro San Antonians know all the best taquerias and panaderias, Philip would have known all the bread joints in the area. And so Jesus asked him, where will we buy bread so that these people can eat? And Philip looked at the crowd and probably thought, uh, Jesus, you're asking the wrong question. The question isn't just where will we buy the bread. The question is also, do we even have the means to acquire such a large amount? And so Philip quickly tabulated what it would take to feed so many thousands of people. And he said to Jesus, 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each of them to have 
a little. Jesus, even if all the panaderias were open, seven months' wages wouldn't even supply the people with a crumb. And another of Jesus' disciples, Andrew, chimed in. There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many people? And so really, the answer to Jesus' question was, nowhere, Jesus Jesus, there is nowhere right now we can get enough food for everyone to be sustained, much less satisfied. And this, this was exactly the answer Jesus fished for. The question puts on display one of my favorite qualities about Jesus. One of the things I love most about him. Jesus wasn't an always serious, out-of-touch philosopher as he's so often portrayed. No, Jesus was more of a fun-loving, playful friend who had a hilarious sense of humor. And John wanted you and me to better recognize this quality about Jesus, and so he recorded this commentary for us. He, Jesus, asked this question to test Philip, for he himself knew what he was going to do. According to John, Jesus had playfully set up his disciples to have their minds blown. And this is exactly what happened. Here's what Jesus had planned all along. Jesus took the loaves from the boy, and after giving thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also with the fish, and check this, as much as they wanted despite seemingly not having adequate means to make an impact. Thousands of people present for this occasion ingested and digested all their stomachs could handle. Jesus had invented the Golden Corral Buffet. And at least for the moment, the crowd's hunger was sustained and their stomachs satisfied. And as if satisfying thousands wasn't wondrous enough, Jesus even overprovided. John told us the disciples filled 12 baskets with pieces from the five barley loaves that were left over. The people were in such a food coma and their minds were so blown at what Jesus had done. John affirmed for us their minds were in fact fixated on whether or not Jesus was their new Moses. They said, this truly is the prophet who is to come in the world. Now, let me just say, We at City Tribe, and even I personally believe that Jesus, God revealed in human form, can give exceedingly, abundantly, and immeasurably more than you and I can ever think or even imagine. And I believe the same fun-loving friend displayed in this story who showed off then still loves to do the same for you and for me today. I believe he still wants to. And if you believe that, Or if Jesus has ever shown off for you or blown your mind, give me a thumbs up or a smiley face. Put some sort of emoji in the comments for us to see. And while we believe Jesus can give abundantly, and while that's what's typically taught from this narrative, that wasn't the primary point John wanted you and me to take from this occasion. It didn't get that much ink. In fact, even Jesus felt the people whose stomachs he had just satisfied had completely misunderstood his miracle. Many likely thought, this is our guy. This is the guy we want restoring our nation to prominence. And we know 
This army-sized crowd wanted to impose their agenda on Jesus, and Jesus was having none of it because John wrote, when Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And let this be an encouragement for you today as it's been an encouragement for me. When you and I are disappointed that Jesus seemingly hasn't answered your prayers or my prayers, when it feels like he's abandoned you or that he doesn't care about you at all, maybe it's that you and I are just forcing our agenda upon him. Maybe we are imposing our desires on Jesus. Anybody like me fall into that from time to time? Maybe the reality is you and I have just missed the point of what Jesus actually wants to do for you. Maybe, as John discovered, it's that Jesus has a grander agenda in store and he plans to show off. Listen, I believe that this is a word for somebody watching or listening right now. Jesus hasn't abandoned you. He isn't ignoring you. He just has something greater in store for you. Will you receive that? And having something greater in store is precisely why John didn't give but a few lines of ink in this section to this sign. So what then was Jesus's purpose in performing this sign? Why did John record this occasion for you and for me? Well, we gain more insight as to why as John continued his flow of thought with what happened next in this narrative, Jesus sent his disciples ahead of him to a place the scriptures refer to as his own town, Capernaum. His disciples hopped in a boat, and given the conditions they faced, they had such a huge head start over Jesus on their journey. John described those conditions this way. He wrote, darkness had already set in, but Jesus had not yet come to them. A high wind arose and the sea began to churn. Like even if Jesus hopped in a boat shortly after they departed, the tumultuous waves would have made it impossible for Jesus to have ever caught up to them. And not only that, their head start over Jesus was so great, they were already in the deep of the sea. They had rowed about three or four miles. In other words, we were super far from the shore. There was no sandbars. And so the best way to describe what happened next is that something supernatural happened. And here's what happened. They saw Jesus walking on the sea. Jesus had somehow broken the natural laws of the physical world to literally casually stroll on the water. The winds didn't phase him. The waves didn't phase him. He was in total control over all of creation. And what John recorded next brings clarity as to why he recorded these two signs. It brings clarity as to why Jesus performed them. He wrote, the crowd that has stayed on the other side of the sea, they saw there had been only one boat. They also saw that Jesus had not boarded the boat with the disciples, but that the disciples had gone off all alone. John was saying, to anyone who'd read his account and doubt what he wrote about Jesus. I'm not making this up. Tens of thousands of people can attest to what I'm telling you. But wait, there's more. 
Tens of thousands of people were even dumbfounded at what they themselves soon discovered. They got into a boat and they went to Capernaum looking for Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus, how did you arrive at Capernaum so quickly? We saw for ourselves it couldn't have been by boat. And so John gave ink to these two signs to say to his readers and to say to you and to me today, tens of thousands of people all around Galilee would have validated for you my claims about Jesus. Thousands of people would have told you that Jesus somehow miraculously fed them until they were full and that he mysteriously arrived at Capernaum and not by boat. And I'm telling you guys, he had control over the elements He manipulated matter. You can be persuaded that this guy is not of this world. Now, I know some of you who had your minds blown by Jesus, you're thinking, amen, like this guy is awesome. But some of you are thinking, how convenient. How convenient that these miracles happened before video cameras. How convenient that no one in John's account is alive today for me to interview. And so why should we trust in these signs pointing to faith in Jesus? Like, how can we be persuaded that they actually happened? Well, two reasons I'm persuaded these signs happened and actually still happen are because of two contemporary scholars. The first is Dr. John P. Meyer of the University of Notre Dame. He's published over 500 pages analyzing Jesus's miracles. He presented a strong concluding statement of his findings, and I've paraphrased it for you this way. It read, Jesus' miracles are so massively attested and coherence around them is so impressive in various sources and literary forms by the end of the first Christian generation that total fabrication is practically speaking impossible. And the other reason I believe Jesus still performs signs today is because of former atheist, Dr. Craig Keener. Dr. Keener has done an extensive amount of work documenting modern day healings and resurrections that have been verified through medical records in a two volume book titled Miracles. And I won't get into the details of those two volumes, but listen to some of what Dr. Keener has found. How valuable is eyewitness testimony? It's a form of evidence in sociology, anthropology, law, journalism, and of course, what I deal with most, historiography. Smaller number of eyewitnesses should count more heavily than a greater number of skeptical non-witnesses. We would apply this to most other kinds of claims. For example, if there's a traffic accident and the officer is interviewing witnesses and someone comes along and says, wait, that's not what happened, don't listen to them. And the officer says, well, can you tell me what you saw happen? And the person says, well, nothing happened. I didn't see it happen because I wasn't there. Normally, we wouldn't take that as a credible uh, weight against witnesses. But when it comes to miracles, that's often what we do. Somebody says, well, I was miraculously healed. Well, I didn't see it. I don't believe it. Are there some credible eyewitnesses for miracles today? There was a 2006 Pew Forum survey. The estimated total of those who claim to be witnesses of divine healing comes out to somewhere around 200 million people. If you say there's no credible eyewitnesses for miracles, off the bat, you're dismissing 200 million people. And sure, some of them are not credible, but are we gonna off the bat dismiss all of them? 
There was a 2008 Pew Forum survey where 34% of Americans claimed to have witnessed or experienced divine or supernatural healing. And it's not just people coming from Christian presuppositions saying, okay, well, I got better, so it must have been a miracle. Millions of non-Christians have been convinced and changed centuries of ancestral beliefs, sometimes at great social cost to themselves because of extraordinary healings. Around the year 2000, one source from within the China Christian Council estimated that about half of all new conversions in the previous 20 years were due to what they deemed faith healing experiences. In the house churches, the estimate was closer to 90% in the rural areas. And these were people who were not starting with Christian premises, not starting with a Christian background, and yet they became Christians because they were convinced that something so out of the ordinary had happened. 90% of the converts in Nepal are converted through healing. Rapid evangelical growth that's been taking place in the last three decades, up to 70% of it has been intimately connected with signs and wonders. And so, yeah, Jesus is still performing signs in our world today. And if he's still at work now, you and I can be persuaded that John recorded the truth. Jesus fed thousands and he walked on water so he can manipulate molecules to multiply barley bread and tiny fish. He can defy the natural laws of the physical world to walk on water. Jesus operates outside of time and space and beyond our comprehension. And so Jesus can, of course, take care of your needs. He can take care of my needs, which means you and I can live our lives resting in what Jesus said to his disciples. Don't be afraid. Say that to yourself out loud or tell the person next to you. Maybe even type it in the comments. Don't be afraid. And it's especially critical that you and I get this, that we internalize this truth that we are persuaded Jesus has command over all of creation. And this is why John recorded these signs. This is why Jesus performed them. They were a setup for the most critical part of this section, the part that got the most ink. And so this is the part that should make us think. And this teaching was so challenging. It was a turning point for Jesus's popularity. Thousands in the crowd that heard it decided that day they were wrong about Jesus. He wasn't the guy that they wanted to follow. They grumbled. This teaching is hard. Who can accept it? And many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him from that point on. And so what teaching were the signs a setup for? What grander agenda did Jesus have in store for you and for me, well, Jesus quickly cut through the crowd's superficial interests in him, and he said to them, truly, truly, most assuredly, most assuredly, I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs. Like, let's be honest, you sought me out, not because you understand the point of the miracles I performed, and you trust I have power to control even the winds and waves, no, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. You tracked me down only because I met your physiological needs and you want more of the same. Now to the crowd's credit, who wouldn't love to have all their most basic physical needs met always? When our most basic needs aren't met, 
It's really hard to consider there's even a God who cares and who loves us. And perhaps for some, the promise of Jesus' provision is a starting point for pursuing him. So let me be clear, I don't fault the crowd for tracking down Jesus for superficial reasons. And honestly, I don't criticize any of you who might be currently struggling, hoping for supernatural help. But Jesus, as he so often did, he redirected his audience. He pointed his audience to something even more significant than having their physical needs met. He said to the crowds, and he says to you and to me today, don't work for the food that perishes. Guys, don't give so much stock to being satisfied and sustained by anything in this physical realm. Don't put your hope for fulfillment in that which has an expiration date, which is basically everything, but work for the food that lasts for eternal life. If you're going to expend so much energy seeking satisfaction and sustenance, then put that effort, put that energy toward acquiring that which will give you life to the full now and for all of eternity, which the Son of Man, Jesus' favorite reference for himself, will give to you. Jesus promised to freely provide a food that will forever sustain and satisfy he offers something better than any breakfast taco in San Antonio, something more fulfilling than Big Red and Barbacoa on a Sunday morning. He offers the world an ever-sustaining, ever-satisfying food. But the crowd, stuck on their desires to have their physical needs met, not able to see past the bread and fish they had eaten the day before, they reminded Jesus what a real prophet of God, a real liberator does. They reminded Jesus how under Moses, people were provided a honey-tasting, seed-like food called manna. And these folks expected Jesus to sustain them similarly. They said, our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, just as it's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus corrected them. He said, truly, truly, most assuredly, most assuredly, I tell you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God gives life to the world. In other words, first of all, guys, the manna our ancestors ate, it didn't come from Moses, a man, but it was a gift from God above. And so technically the manna they ate wasn't simply a physical provision but it was a spiritual sign of food to come. And secondly, the manna that sustained them physically is nothing like the bread from heaven now offered. God has something even better than manna to sustain and satisfy you. In fact, Jesus later told them, your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. And Jesus later repeated himself to emphasize his point. He said, the true bread from heaven is not like the manna your ancestors ate and they died. Jesus' point was stop fixating on the physical, y'all. Even if I provided for your basic physical and physiological needs right now, you're still going to die. Even if I made it rain down food or anything else that you want in abundance, you still will not be truly sustained. You will never be fully satisfied and guess what? God the Father wouldn't be satisfied either. Why? Because while God loves to give, 
And while I'm certain he wants to give you whatever it is you desire that you would feel fulfilled on this earth, he knows how you and I can experience true satisfaction. And this was Jesus's primary agenda. He said, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but I should raise them up on the last day. Your true satisfaction, my true satisfaction, will not come from anything this world can offer. Thus, Jesus wanted us to fixate on the provision from heaven that gives life to the full for all of eternity. He wanted you and me to desire true bread. And so what exactly is true bread from heaven? What exactly is this bread from God that gives life to the world? Jesus answered that. He said, I am the bread of life. Jesus claimed he was the provision from heaven that forever sustains and satisfies, that gives life to the full. And he wasn't ambiguous about it. He repeated himself and he repeated himself several times. And as I often say, when the king repeats himself, you better pay attention. And as we've already learned, whatever gets the most ink, whatever gets repeated should make you think. And so think about this. Jesus repeated, I am the bread of life. And he again said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. The bread that I will give you for the life of the world is my flesh. So the food that lasts for eternal life, that Jesus gives, the food he wants you and me to ingest and digest is his own flesh. But how exactly is this bread from heaven any different from physical bread? Like, how does it sustain and satisfy us? Well, Jesus said, truly, truly, most assuredly, most assuredly, I tell you, the one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Now, the idea of the word remains is analogous to the idea of making yourself at home. And so Jesus said, for everyone who eats his flesh, he will make himself at home in that person. He will take up residence and dwell in that person, meaning he will put within you the same spirit of wisdom and power that was in him, that enabled him to perform signs and wonders. And so you and I can be sustained by a confidence in the power within us to make an impact in the world. We can have a confidence that we will know what to do through the spirit. In fact, Jesus said about anyone with his indwelling spirit, he will do the works that I do. He will do even greater works than these. And this is just one of the ways Jesus' bread of life sustains and satisfies us. But not just that. Jesus said, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat of it and not die. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Jesus said, anyone who eats the bread that is his flesh will have eternal life, meaning no matter our circumstances, you can be sustained and I can be sustained with the hope for our future. So while pandemics might affect your job and your finances and politics might disappoint or distress you, while you may mourn the loss of a loved one taken too soon like Jesus mourned his cousin, when you and I eat this bread of life, we will be sustained in the hope knowing this life is just the beginning. 
And on top of that, you and I can have a satisfying sense of security knowing that once this bread is ingested and digested, you are forever accepted and can never be rejected by God. You are forever secured a ticket to the eternal realm where God presides. Jesus said of the person who eats his flesh, I will never cast out that individual. How amazing is that? I mean, come on, somebody in the comments. How amazing is that? Now to recap, Jesus said, he's the bread of life. And anyone who ingests and digests his flesh, these things will happen. Number one, you will receive his spirit. Number two, you will do even greater wonders than he. Number three, you will be raised to eternal life. And number four, you will never be cast out. Now, let's pause to think. Since all that got so much ink, let that sink in for just a moment. Whether you're a longtime follower of Jesus, a spiritual investigator, a skeptic, or an atheist, what do these promises produce in you? What does the promise of all of this produce in you? I know for me, the promise of all of this produces an inexplicable joy and a peace and a hope. My soul feels filled with satisfaction and it feels nothing like anything else I've ever experienced in this world. Nothing else has ever been able to sustain me in this way. And this is what Jesus meant when he said the spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh doesn't help at all. This is why God's will for you is to live by his spirit. It's what John wanted for you. It's what I want for you. So you and I need to feed off of Jesus. We need to ingest and digest Jesus's flesh. And I know all of that sounds like Jesus promoted cannibalism, which is pretty obvious to us today, like he didn't promote that. So what did Jesus mean by the requirement to eat his flesh? Like how might you and I ingest and digest this bread of life? Jesus explained it this way. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry. Meaning everyone who arrives at Jesus will forever be sustained and satisfied. Then he restated the same idea in just a slightly different way. He continued, and no one who believes in me will ever thirst again. Everyone who accepts and affirms Jesus will be sustained and satisfied. So let's put these two things together. It's as if Jesus said, you are forever sustained and satisfied when you arrive at, accept, and affirm me. This is what it means to eat the bread of life. This is what it means to ingest and digest Jesus' flesh. But what belief about Jesus must we arrive at? What exactly must we accept and affirm about him? Well, here's how one of his disciples, Peter, stated it. He said, you have the words of life. We have come to believe and recognize that you are the Holy One of God. And so you and I must arrive at the belief. We must recognize that Jesus is the Holy One of God, whose words have eternal life. That Jesus' spirit And his words alone are the ultimate source of your sustenance and your satisfaction. And I get how hokey all of that sounds, but I can attest to this personally. 
So a few years ago, as I started my journey to better recognize who Jesus is, I had a most unexpected experience. It's like Jesus knew exactly what I needed when I needed it. Someone I had never met tracked me down via social media to invite me to have coffee. This individual had only heard me one time perform poetry, and it had been several years prior. And he couldn't explain this, but a project at his work brought me to the forefront of his mind, and he felt he had to connect with me. And so he reached out, and we went for coffee, and as we got acquainted, we discovered we both had a profound curiosity to better know who Jesus is. And so from that initial conversation, we agreed to meet for coffee to talk again about Jesus. And then after another amazing conversation, we agreed to meet yet again, and then again, and eventually we established a regular Jesus-centered coffee date. We'd planned to meet for only an hour at a time, but the conversations were so enriching, so amazing. We'd end up talking for several hours, four hours at a time, and I'd joke with my buddy that our conversations about Jesus were better than any sermon that I had ever given, or they were better than any sermon that I'd ever sat through. And I'd come home so energized, smiling from ear to ear that my wife grew a little suspicious about my coffee friend. But then I'd enthusiastically recap for Christine the entire four-hour conversation that I had just had about Jesus. And talking about Jesus was so infectious for her. Even she agreed to know him more intimately with me. And I'm telling y'all, I would not be teaching here today if not for all those coffee conversations about Jesus. Because while I might have been ingesting coffee, what I was really doing was feeding off of the bread of life. I came to better recognize what Peter and John recognized, that Jesus is the Holy One of God. His words produce life to the full. He's the source of my sustenance and my satisfaction. And this is what I want each of you to experience. And so I'm inviting you to feed off of Jesus to eat his flesh. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. I'm inviting you to let Jesus be the source of your sustenance and your satisfaction. Let Jesus's words and his spirit fill you in a supernatural way. And this is one of the reasons Jesus invited us, instructed us to remember him often through a tradition we now call the Eucharist or communion which we're about to partake in right now. So if you have your items to participate in the Eucharist, in communion, go ahead and get them ready. Now, the Eucharist, communion, it's a symbolic expression of eating Jesus's flesh and drinking his blood. It's an expression that you believe he is the Holy One sent from God to give us life to the full. Now, the night before Jesus was crucified, he took a loaf of bread so if you have your loaf of bread, a slice of bread, or a cracker, go ahead and grab that right now. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said to his disciples, this is my flesh. This is the bread of life that is for you. When you eat it, remember me. And go ahead and eat the bread. And as you eat it, I want you to remember that Jesus is God in human form. God who loved you so much, he came down from heaven in human flesh.
And in the same way, after supper, he took a cup of wine. And so if you have your cup of wine or a cup of juice, go ahead and grab that right now. And Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant, a new unbreakable promise that's inaugurated by my blood. And as often as you drink it, remember me. And so go ahead and take a sip of your juice or your wine. And as you do, I want you to remember that Jesus poured out his blood for you in order that he could put his spirit within you, the spirit that will raise you from the dead in order that you can be with him for eternity. Go ahead and take a drink. Jesus went on to say, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You proclaim that you believe Jesus is the Holy One sent from God to give life to the full, that he loved you so much, he laid down his life, he put his spirit in you, the spirit that has resurrecting power, that you will be with him in eternity. And so let's not let this moment pass us by too quickly. Right now, the band is about to play. And so I invite you to just sit and allow the lyrics to the song wash over you, fill you. Allow the lyrics to remind you of your belief in Jesus. Allow it to sustain you and to satisfy you. And so, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, would you just in this moment fill us. Let us feel your presence. Remind us of your goodness that your love was so strong for us that you came down to claim us and to say that we are yours.
John gave the most ink to this section because he wanted you and me to ingest and digest the truth that he had come to recognize, the truth that he arrived at, that Jesus is the bread of life. He is the Holy One sent from God from heaven who is the source of our sustenance and our satisfaction. And so if you have believed, if you have ingested, digested, internalized that truth, you can rest in the promise. You can have satisfaction knowing that there is hope for your future. You will be resurrected and have an opportunity to enjoy Jesus's presence for eternity. Now, before we go, before we conclude our time together, I want to encourage you and remind you to practice the three S's of City Tribe. And the first one is to share. Share this message. If there's somebody you know who is seeking satisfaction, who could use a little bit of sustenance in their life right now, make sure you share this message, whether the link of the video or the podcast or even in your own words. Secondly, we encourage you to subscribe, stay connected to us, click that subscribe button so you can get all the latest City Tribe teachings. And lastly, sow. Sow a seed you saw earlier in the signs that Jesus performed. He can do exceedingly, abundantly, immeasurably more than you could ever think or imagine. And he invites you to trust him with your resources, just 10% of them. And so here are the ways that you can sow a seed. You can give 10% or as Pastor Doug teaches, the tithe. And so be sure to do that as you go. And brothers and sisters, as you go, may you remember what John gave the most ink to. It was so important for him. And it's that Jesus is the bread of life that has come down from heaven. He is the source of our sustenance, and our satisfaction. May you rest in that truth in Jesus' name. God bless you guys. We're glad you're a part of the tribe today. To further connect with us, check citytribe.church.